Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Hey church, let's celebrate Jesus this morning. Thank the Lord for our team. Welcome to Connect Church. And we are so grateful that you are here. And yet another Sunday and another opportunity to make much of Jesus together, to do everything we can, to connect everyone we can with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good uh, to be back with you this Sunday. Last week, our family uh, headed down to the Gulf Coast, and there we spent some time as a family. We just had a great uh, time, and just because I'm a man, I just want to celebrate. We went out on the Gulf and fished one day, and me, my wife, and my four kids caught over 125 fish. And look, that's not exaggerating. Look, here's part of the catch we brought home. Uh, this is over 30 fish that we got to keep because they were in season. And let me tell you how good God is. You ready? An hour later, that was the fish. Isn't that good? Man, I tell you what, it was just so much fun. And we'd never eaten so much fish in our life. It was just such a great time uh, to be with family. Dominic did a, a great job here at Connect Church. But it is so good uh, to be back with you. A lot of times... Uh, when I preach on Sunday morning, uh, something I love to do is just love to, to laugh with you as a church. And yet, this Sunday, I just find my heart lamenting, grieving, mourning, aching for the people and the land of Israel. For the rest of our time in the Gospel of John, we're, we're going to find ourselves with Jesus and the disciples there in the land of Israel the city of Jerusalem. I love this area of the world. It's the land that God ordained as ground zero for saving the world and saving your soul and mine. And I feel really impressed today to address what has taken place and what has happened over this past week. In fact, in just 16 days, um, a team of over 50 of us from Connect Church were slated to fly to Jerusalem, to Israel, and to spend 11 days there on the ground walking where Jesus walked, and that was until last Saturday. The Sabbath, during the holy feast of Sukkot, a time where a depraved and evil terrorist of Hamas, a radical Islamic terrorist group based in Gaza, launched a surprise and unprovoked attack against the nation, the people, and the God of Israel. What we've seen transpired over the past week is nothing short of, of heartbreaking and, and gut-wrenching and pure evil. General George Patton once said this, that war is hell, and he would know. This past week, we have seen some of the most hellish acts of evil I have, I've been to Israel. I, I love the land. I love the people. I love the culture. So much of my, my faith and my life have been impacted by events in this land. Most of all, hey, my Savior was born there. My Savior born a Jewish boy grew into a, a Jewish man. And, and to borrow from John chapter 1, verse 14, Israel is the land where God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It is the land where heaven kissed earth. It is his, in Israel where Jesus died for our sins. And just outside of Jerusalem, 
It is where we find that his grave still sits empty to this day. You see, the nation and the people of Israel matter to God, and they matter to us. Where did this conflict between the Arabs and the Jews, where did it begin? You see, the tension between Arabs and the Jews, as Dr. Nelson Price so eloquently put it, began in a Bedouin's tent 4,000 years ago when Abraham had one too many sons. You see, Abraham had a son by the name of Ishmael with his wife's servant named Hagar in Genesis 16. And yet God, still in his grace and in keeping to his word in Genesis 21, still blessed Abraham, his wife Sarah, whose womb was barren, with a son of their own by the name of Isaac. Ishmael's direct descendants are the Arabs of today. Isaac's direct descendants are the Jewish people of this day. And ever since then, Arabs and Jews have warred against each other. What we have seen unfold in this past week is merely the collateral damage done by the sin found in that Bedouin's tent. And can I just remind us real quick that sin's collateral damage can last for generations. Don't believe me? Turn on the news. Turn on the news. Oftentimes, when conflict erupts in the Middle East, Israelis are called occupiers. Let me remind you that the occupier and the oppressor of the Palestinian people is Hamas, who oppress and they impoverish their people, abuse and impose medieval restrictions on their women and care only for themselves, their power, and the destruction of Israel. In fact, in 2005, the Israeli government gave Gaza Strip over to the Palestinian people to govern themselves in freedom. At that time, the Israeli government forced over 7,000 of their own Jewish settlers and settlements out of Gaza to give the Palestinian people more land. But tragically, a year later in 2006, Hamas came to power. The massacre we saw a week ago, the torture, the, the rape, the kidnapping of innocent civilians, women, children, and the el elderly. They are not the actions of men or militants, but of cowardly terrorists. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this not long ago, and I think he hit it right on the head. He said, if Arabs put down their weapons today, there will be peace. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel. And sadly, he is, he is right. Church, Israel has a right to exist. They have a right to defend themselves. And I want you to hear me as a, as a church, as your pastor, as a, a proud American, that we unashamedly and unapologetically stand with the people and the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, the innocents in Israel have and will continue to bear the brunt of racism and terrorism. I'm also aware and heartbroken that there are innocent women and children and men in Gaza too. Those that hate Hamas but are powerless to stop them. They too will bear the brunt of the brutality of war at the hands of Hamas. 
And so I stand here this morning and my heart hurts and my soul cries out to the Lord on behalf of the innocent on both sides of this Israeli and Gaza border. I pray, I find myself praying for justice to be executed against Hamas. I pray for the success of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. I pray for their protection. I pray for the hostages to be rescued and returned home. But we must be clear. There are no moral equivalents between Israel and Hamas. Hamas cowardly attacks civilians, families asleep in their beds, young people dancing in an open-air festival, people just driving down the road, killing innocent, unarmed men, women, and children, whole families executing them, and in some cases, kidnapping them. On the contrary, Israel, to the best of their ability, has done what no other fighting force has done in history. What Hamas has never done. Israeli forces throughout this week have called and texted civilians in Gaza, dropped leaflets from the sky, dropped low ordnance bombs on rooftops to knock on the buildings that they are about to hit in order to warn Palestinian civilians to evacuate targets that Hamas has used to exact terror in Israel. While Israelis warn the Palestinians, Hamas uses innocent Palestinians, including women and children, schools and hospitals, mosques and apartment complexes as human shields, exposing just how cruel, how calloused, how cowardly they truly are. Hear me, any innocent blood of a Palestinian person who dies in Gaza lies not on the hands of the Israeli people or government, but lies in the hands of Hamas. For the past week, I've been glued to reports coming from Israel. I, I kind of do this. I don't know, maybe I'll do this. I, I switch between Fox News and CNN because both media outlets are super fair and balanced. And so I kind of switch between the coverage and, and I try to get my news in between the middle somewhere. And I was watching Wolf Blitzer the other night in a show called The Situation Room on CNN. And he was interviewing an American doctor who was with a relief organization inside Gaza City. And she found herself, like so many others, trapped in Gaza as Israel began to respond to the terrorist attacks. While on interview, she was on a split screen with a, an image of a live image of Gaza City when all of a sudden I saw on one side of the screen a bomb explode and then I saw her on the screen as her house and she herself were shaken by the explosion. It was just really eerie. It caught Wolf Blitzer off guard and he said this, he said, man, listen, I understand if you need to get off here and you need to go down into a bomb shelter. And you know what she did? She smiled, but there was no hope in her smile. She said, there are no bomb shelters in Gaza. Israeli government has seen to it that its civilians have bomb shelters. The only people that have access to bomb shelters in Gaza are Hamas. None of the civilians. There, there's no moral equivalence between the two. Now, while we are saddened by what has taken place, we are not surprised. These events are more than just headlines in the news today. Israel, her past 
Her present and her future has served as headliners in Scripture from nearly the beginning. All the eyes of the world are again on Israel. The question I have for us today is simply this in light of these events is God done with Israel? And we begin to answer that question by going to Scripture, the Old Testament, looking at two promises, two covenants in the Old Testament. One promise to Abraham, the other promise to King David. I want you to look in Genesis chapter 12 at a promise that God makes to Abraham. It reads like this, God speaking to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Listen to these next words. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. By the way, real quick, anytime you hear anyone say you better be careful and not mess with Israel, it stems from this very promise. In fact, American foreign policy for years and Israel now has been predicated on this very promise from the word of God. Don't mess with Israel. Well, later in Genesis chapter 17 verse 8, we see the full scope of the land that God had given to the Jewish people the very land, the promised land of Israel. Take a look at this map. Uh, This is the border of present day um, Israel. And we see that it's vast and it comes down to here. And and what we begin to see in Scripture in Genesis that it's not just this small sliver of land. It is all the land you see and more. Land that goes through Jordan and Syria, this modern-day kingdom of Saudi Arabia, all the way up to southern Iraq and down into Egypt. It is a massive piece of land promised to the people of God. Look at this in Genesis 17, 8. The whole land of Canaan, God says, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as, watch this, an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you. Here we find an unconditional promise that the land of Israel, the promised land, will belong to the people of God, the Jewish people. It's an everlasting covenant and promise. You might ask yourself, I fall in the category of all the peoples of the earth, right? So one thing we all have in common in here is we are part of that all the peoples of the earth who will be blessed by Abraham. You might be asking this today. How has Abraham blessed me today? How is it that I've had and received any blessing from Abraham? From his line came your Lord. From his genealogy came God in the flesh. From his seed came the Savior of the world. The promise to Abraham points Abraham and us even to this day to Jesus. And I love what Paul points out in Galatians chapter 3. Watch this. That if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according, the Bible says, to the promise. I want you to hear me. I may not be a son of Abraham by blood, but I am a child of Abraham because the blood of Jesus runs through my veins by faith. You see, the real sons and daughters of Abraham are the very ones who follow the promise of Abraham, who is Jesus. But alongside of this promise of land was the reality that because of the people of God's sin and rebellion, they would be scattered for a time. But the promise always came to be that they would return and possess 
the land that God had given them again. Uh, this great scattering began in Joseph's day when the people of God were scattered and dispersed into Egypt. And later, the Jews were dispersed all across the Babylonian world through the Babylonian captivity. But the greatest dispersion of Jews occurred in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple of God and sent the Jews from Israel all throughout the known world. They were scattered for over 2,000 years, that is, until 1948. When the British Empire left Israel and the Jews took possession of the Promised Land, becoming then, on May 14th, an official state. This also sparked what would be the first of many Arab-Israeli wars, a war in which Israel won, but at the same time, many Palestinians were displaced. Thus the claim from Palestinians that Israelis are occupiers. But hear me, long before 1948, Palestinians occupied land that rightfully belonged to Israel, given them by God. In Genesis chapter 12, Charles Krautheimer, who's dead now, but would acclaim Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, once said this, and, and I love this. He says, Israel is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. I'm going to hear me, church. This is not by chance. This is miraculous. It is a reminder at what took place in 1948 and continues today that God keeps his promises. But I want you to hear me. There's still parts of this promise, this everlasting possession and promise from God that have yet to be, but will soon come to be. Now, let's turn our attention to the promises made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Watch this. God would tell King David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Man, what an incredible promise. But, but you and I begin to think through this. There's no throne that a descendant of David now sits on in the land of Israel in Jerusalem. So let me connect some dots here with you concerning this pro promise. Did you know that King David, according to the Gospel of Luke, is the 39th grandfather of a man by the name of Jesus? That we find... Even an angel by the name of Gabriel speaking to a young virgin by the name of Mary. And watch this in Luke chapter 1. Behold, the angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will have no end. Yet again, this promise to David and to Israel points us to Jesus. But hear me, there are parts of this promise that have yet to be, but will be, as we will soon see. But I must stop here for a moment and ask one question. Yet again, is God done with Israel? Many Jews in Israel today, many Jews around the world, have rejected Christ, but has God rejected them? Well, Paul lets us in, and he should know. He lets us in on God's heart and plan and future for the people and the nation of Israel. Watch this. He writes in Romans chapter 11, Israel has experienced a hardening. Now watch these words, in part. 
in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel, watch this, in the future, all of Israel will be saved. We see this partial hardening at play now for many of the Jewish faith. But it is only a partial hardening according to the text. And how do I know this? How do I know that God is still at work in the lives of Jewish people? Paul's testimony. Just a few verses earlier, we see Paul wrestle with this very question. And by the predicate of his testimony, reminds us that God is still at work. Watch this in verse 1 and 2. I asked then, and this is Paul writing, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Notice that Paul reiterates in the text that God has not rejected the Jews evidenced by the very fact of his own testimony. A Jewish man now saved. I want you to consider this. That since Paul wrote that letter to the churches in Rome, millions of ethnic Jews have come to faith and trust in Jesus. In our study of the Gospel of John, we have seen up until chapter 13, time and time again, many Jews who have believed in Jesus and followed him. In fact, alive today, there's an estimated over 350,000 Messianic Jews who have believed in Jesus Christ and who follow him to this day. Hey, listen, God's not done with the Jewish people and God's not done with Israel. Has God forgotten Israel? No. Has God forsaken Israel? No. Is there a future for the people in the nation of Israel? Yes. What does that future look like? For just a moment, by the way, the complexity of our conversation and prophecy is far greater than my ability to simplify it in my 30-minute time frame. But for a moment, let's dive into eschatology. That word simply means a study of the end times. Let's take a glimpse into the end times and see if Israel is anywhere, any place to be as we take this glimpse together. As we do so, looking to see if the promises to the Jewish people and the land of Israel, are they fully fulfilled? And if they are, in who? I want to show you a, a simplified timetable of the end times. I approach this from a certain theological position that maybe not all of you have. Can I remind you? It's okay. We can still sit at the same table and make much of Jesus together. But let me share with you kind of the unfolding events of the end times. It's who you see in places like Zechariah and Zephaniah and Daniel in the book of Revelation. And so as the end times begin to unfold and we begin to take our glimpse together into the end times. I want you to notice first that you and I are in the church age right now. We are in the church age, and there's an event that is to come, and it's called the rapture of the church, and I want you to remember it this way. It is the time where Christ comes for his church. 
We find it in the letter to the, the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It recounts this time for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The rapture, when Christ comes for his church, is sooner than we might think. I, I want to tell you, while it seems as if the entire world is preparing for war, heaven is preparing for a wedding. The time where Christ comes for his bride, the church, and takes us to be with him in what is known as the rapture. Can I ask you something? Are you ready for Jesus to come? Adrian Rogers, the great pastor, put it this way. As believers, our response to this is that we ought to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again this morning, and is coming back this afternoon. Those are the implications to the believer. But after this time of rapture begins what has been coined in Daniel chapter 9 as the 70th week of Daniel, a time period of seven years known as the tribulation with the last part of that, the last half, that three and a half years, coined the great tribulation, first spoken of by Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, and then reiterated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 when he speaks of this time. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and no and never will be. You see, that seven-year period is right here that Jesus speaks of. A terrible time of tribulation. And I want to remind you why it is that, that I would argue that the church is not there because this is a seven years where God pours out his wrath against the sin of the world and as a punishment to the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus Christ. The reason I'm convinced the church is not there is because 1 Thessalonians reminds us that God did not appoint us to wrath. Hey, listen to me, church. Wrath is no longer a part of your story, so we're not going to be there when God pours out his wrath. We're going to be with Jesus in heaven. But I want us to look also to Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks to these days of tribulation. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, I want you to notice his language here. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a, this is a, a name for Israel. Remember, Jacob's name was actually changed to Israel by God. This is the people and the nation of Israel. It's the time of their trouble. But watch this. He shall be saved out of it. The people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel shall be saved out of it. This is pointing us to a time in that time of tribulation where Jesus saves Jewish people. In fact, there's a prophecy. Watch this in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Looking to that time of tribulation, the Bible says that God speaks, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, Long before Jesus, we see a picture of him here. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. 
This is a description of Christ in a time that's coming, the Bible teaches us, where Jews will look to Jesus, the one whom they've pierced, and will be saved in masses by him. That time is detailed for us in Revelation chapter 7. In between the sixth and the seventh seals of judgment, where God will both save and seal many Jews in the tribulation. We see a picture of this in Revelation. So let me remind you, at some point in this seven-year period of tribulation, there is a revival that breaks out. There is a, a group of Jewish people who come to Christ, look upon him. And Revelation chapter 7 begins to detail that for us. And John recounts hearing this number of those who were sealed to be 144,000, watch this, from all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And we also see that there's a mission that they are tasked with. And this mission seems to be sharing the gospel with a post-rapture world enduring the great tribulation. Watch this in verse 9, because shortly after this, I looked, John says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. And the Bible says, and before the Lamb. Hey, you ready? Talk about God blessing all the people through Abraham like he promised, and he still does. God is not done with Israel. But we understand this, that although God works and he moves, in the hearts of the Jewish people in this time of terrible tribulation on the earth, there too comes an end to the great tribulation. Zechariah teaches us a little bit about this day and begins to paint a picture for us. Long ago, Zechariah saw then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and watch this, and his name, the only name. You see, after the seven years of the tribulation, many Jews are saved here. They do the work of the gospel during this time. This time of tribulation comes to an end with the return of Jesus. At the rapture, he came for his church. At the end of the tribulation, he comes with his church. And I want you to see the picture that's painted in Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, John says, whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. Christ comes with the church, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. One of my favorite depictions of Jesus as he comes with his church to destroy the armies of earth who've waged war against him at the end of the great tribulation. And as Jesus stands victorious, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that he sits down 
on the throne of David in Jerusalem and begins what is known as the millennial reign. And what we begin to see there is that yet again, not only for the people, the Jewish people, but for the land and the nation of Israel, what we see unfolding is God keeping his promise. Abraham and David keeping his promise that is fulfilled in Jesus in this very moment. And that's just a glimpse. I could spend hours more and still not exhaust it. But preaching and looking into it enough to say that God is not done with Israel. He's not done. So what, what do we do when the conflict rages in the Middle East? What we see unfolding there today is really one of the greatest altar calls in all of history. It is a call for those who don't know Christ to come to Jesus, and it is a challenge to the church to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Are you ready for Jesus to come again? You see what I see taking place in Israel and in the Middle East is nothing short than a reminder to me that Jesus is a coming again. And so people will ask me, and they have all week, Pastor, do you think that this is what takes place? That Do you think that this is what's going to happen and Jesus is going to come again? And do you know what my answer is? And I sure hope so. And I sure hope so. In the first service, we had our 100th baptism of the year. A guy by the name of Trevor. Soon, Catherine, we're going to baptize you in just a few minutes. And you know what I told Trevor as I got ready to baptize him? I said, how cool would it be? After, after I said, you know, Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism. And as I began to bring him up out of the water, Jesus was come for his bride. Will these events lead to the return of Christ? I sure hope so. But I don't know. I know not the day nor the hour on which Jesus comes again. I will tell you this. He's coming. And I'm ready. He's coming and I'm ready for him to come again. And I'm going to tell you a truth today. You ready? That today we are one day closer than we were yesterday to Jesus coming again. Are you ready? God's not done with Israel. God's not done with you. I want to end by saying this. That nowhere in the prophecies of old in the fulfillment in the new, nowhere here are believers in Christ ever called to fear the return of Jesus. Nowhere are we called to look into that great tribulation and to respond with fear. Nowhere are we called to fear the Antichrist or the false prophet who comes one day. Nowhere are we to fear the war that will be Armageddon one day. Nowhere in here is to fear the end times that are to come. But universally in here is the call and the command of every believer to be ready for the return of Jesus. To live by Jesus died yesterday, he rose again this morning, 
and he is coming back this afternoon. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Let's pray together, can we? As we pray together, and believer, I preached this message today. By the time I got into Thursday afternoon, a message that was four hours long, I spent days cutting from it scripture and arguments and things just to be able to to bring some truth and some nuggets today to help you frame up what's taking place in the Middle East. And I'm telling you, it's not a message to bring about fear, to be toppled by fear, but to turn to your faith and ask you a simple question. Are you ready for Jesus to come? some of you might sit there and go I'm not ready but let me ask you some questions when was the last time you thought about Jesus coming again hey when was the last time that that affected your calendar that it had any weight on decisions you made but let me ask you this when was the last time you helped somebody else get ready for Jesus coming again you're here this morning, you go, you know, I don't know the answers to that. And let me challenge you to repent and to ready your heart for the coming of Jesus. You see, the hope of Israel for thousands of years in the Old Testament, the hope that was looking forward from the New Testament, looking at and the hope we now have and share with the Jewish people is looking back to what Jesus has done and the future that is yet to be. Church, every day, be ready for Jesus could come today. Ready your heart. May you be found when he does come about your father's business. May our prayer today be, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. May we also pray for the people in the land of Israel. Those who are hurting, dying, fighting for the innocents to whom evil was visible. On the other side of the border in Gaza, precious women and children and some men that that are innocent as well and who are hurting. Pray Israel. Pray for the innocent. And as believers are praying all across this room. And I gotta, gotta ask do you know Jesus? Are you ready for his come? For some of you, this conversation has conjured up nothing but fear in your heart, in your mind. And the reason is, is because and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never given him your heart and your life. And I just want to challenge you right now that you need to come to Jesus by faith. Placing your faith and trust in him. Maybe right now where you're sitting, crying out for him to save you, praying something like this. Dear Jesus, I 
I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. Please save me. I place my faith and my trust in you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again. I give you my life. Would you help me turn from my sin and myself? Jesus, I am yours. Nobody looking, I wonder uh, who prayed that. I won't embarrass you or call you out. But hey, if you prayed that with me, would you do me one great honor? Would you just look up here for a moment? I won't embarrass you or call you out. I just want to see you. Hey, I prayed that with you today, Pastor. Just give me a minute to look across the room. Man, I'm looking for your eyes. I see you, sir. Man, thank you. Somebody else, it's me. I see you. I see you. Somebody else. But I want you to hear me. That's not the end. It's just the beginning of new life in Christ. There's a number on the screen. I would love you to text your name to that number. It comes to my office. We want to follow up with you, give you a call, pray with you, celebrate with you. Hey, for those of you who'd rather, there's a Next Steps tent out in the lobby. And you know what? we'll, We'll give you a Bible. We've got resources. Let them know you prayed with me today. And we'll call you this week and help them take your next step. And we celebrate. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.